Beautiful. Well read. Um, <laughs> g'day. Welcome. Good to be together. We're in our series, uh, Don't Talk About Money, where we talk about money. Uh, today, we're going to work through that passage uh, that Jay just read for us. Uh, before we do, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, this is a challenging passage, and we pray that you would challenge us today. Uh, we pray that we wouldn't squirm or wriggle our way out of full obedience uh, to the command of Jesus. We pray that we would submit our lives willingly and freely and joyfully to the one who gave himself for us. Um, we pray, teach us what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and we pray, make the impossible possible today uh, by your spirit. Amen. Uh, well, uh, I think that what we have in front of us is one of, if not the most, uh, challenging passage in the whole of Matthew's gospel. I think there are two things that make it so challenging. Uh, first is when Jesus tells this young man to go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Uh, that's challenging because we hear that and we go, wow, that's, that's extreme. That's too radical. It's too demanding. Um, and we start to ask questions about, well, does that apply to us? And if so, what does that mean? Because um, surely Jesus doesn't actually want us to go and sell everything and, and do the same thing. That would be too challenging, impossible. Uh, and that's clearly what this young man thought because he went away sad. Um, you can see that there, um, verse 22, he went away sad. Uh, now that phrase, he went away sad, the word sad there is often a word that's translated as grieving or lamenting. And so this man walked away grieving and lamenting. Why? Because what Jesus said was too challenging. It was too much, impossible. Uh, and that's the first thing uh, that makes this passage really challenging. Uh, there's also a second. Uh, you can see it there, verse 24. Jesus says again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, in other words, it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom, to be saved. Impossible. Can't be done. Uh, and remember, according to the Bible, most of us here today uh, are going to be rich. Uh, and so what's Jesus saying? We can't be saved? Uh, more than that, in the ancient world, it was thought that it was actually the rich who were closest to God because, you know, he'd bless them, that kind of stuff. And so the disciples, their assumption is that, well, if the rich can't be saved, nah, none of us can. Uh, you see that in their response. They don't say, who out of the rich people can be saved? They say, who can be saved? Uh, who out of anyone can do what Jesus requires? Uh, it's a challenging word. Uh, and you see just how challenging it is when you look at the disciples' response. Um, notice verse 25. It says, the disciples were greatly astonished. Um, if you do a little search on that phrase, what you'll find is that four times throughout Matthew's gospel, people are astonished at Jesus. Uh, but only this one time is anyone greatly astonished. Uh, phrase can also mean something like extremely overwhelmed, uh, which I think means that according to, at least according to Matthew, this is the most overwhelming, the most radical thing that Jesus says in the whole gospel. Uh, it's extremely overwhelming. Uh, I reckon there's two big dangers for us when it comes to this passage. Uh, the first is that we would soften it 
and water it down to make it a little less overwhelming, a little less astonishing. Um, there's going to be something in us that will want to wriggle and squirm our way out of anything too radical. Uh, one man who knew this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he was a German pastor during the Second World War. Uh, he was imprisoned and actually executed by the Nazis. Uh, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, he reflects on this story of this rich young man. Uh, I think this is the best thing written on this story. Uh, it's insightful, pastoral, challenging. I'm going to quote from it a number of times today. Uh, but one of the b- things Bonhoeffer notices is that the man in this story, he was given an unambiguous command. No wiggle room, sell everything. Yes or no? Um, Bonhoeffer notices that what we often do is kind of spiritualize, rationalize, and kind of wiggle our way out of anything too radical. Uh, And so he says this, the difference between ourselves and the rich young man is that he was not allowed to solace his regrets by saying, never mind what Jesus says, I can still hold on to my riches, but in a spirit of inner detachment. Despite my inadequacy, I can take comfort in the thought that God has forgiven me my sins and can have fellowship with Christ in faith. But no, he went away sorrowful. Because he would not obey, he could not believe. In this, the young man was quite honest. Now, Bonhoeffer does go on to say that there is actually an element of truth to that kind of thing of inner spiritual detachment. Uh, We'll see how that plays out later. But Bonhoeffer notices we very quickly, too quickly, go to soften, to water down, and we say things like, ah, we don't actually have to give anything. We just have to be willing, were he to ask such a thing, Uh, which he never seems to do. Um, First danger with this passage, wriggling our way out. Uh, Second danger is that we'd go away grieving. Notice this man turns down Jesus and he leaves. Sad. Uh, I wonder if that little moment would have haunted this man for the rest of his life. Always wondering, what would have happened if I really had sold everything and followed Jesus? Um, So in light of that, I've got two aims today. Uh, First is that we would understand exactly what Jesus is saying here both when it comes to money, but more importantly, uh, following Jesus. Uh, So first name, we don't want to water it down, don't want to wriggle our way out. Uh, But second name, once we do know what he's saying, is that none of us would go away grieving, that in the end we would leave everything to follow him and in doing so find treasure in heaven. That's the aim. Uh, To help us do that, what we're going to do is I want to take us through three mistakes that this young man made when he met Jesus. So we don't make the same mistakes. Uh, And then I want to take us through three marks of a true disciple. So three mistakes, three marks. First mistake is that this man treats Jesus simply as a teacher. He just treats him like a teacher. Um, So let's start with this young man. Uh, Because just notice when we first meet this man, we actually aren't told anything about him. Uh, Verse 16, if you look, it just says we're told that a, a man came and asked a question. It's only down verse 20 that we learn that he's a moral man. He says, all these are things I've kept. Uh, Also, verse 20 is the first time we learn that he's young, uh, probably in his early 20s or something. And then it's only right at the end of his interaction with Jesus that we learn that this young man is, in fact, a rich man. 
Uh, and so if we imagine reading this passage for the first time, we actually have no idea that this passage becomes all about money. Uh, that only comes later. And so if we're reading through as if for the first time, it seems like there is a man who asks Jesus about salvation. Uh, you can see it there, verse 16. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? That's what the passage is about. Eternal life, Jesus calls it entering the kingdom. Disciples, verse 25, they call it being saved. That's what we're talking about. Uh, life after death. Uh, now, this, ma this man, he clearly has some kind of hunger to know about this salvation. Maybe you're here today and you do too. You're hungry. Um, but just notice how this man addresses Jesus. Teacher. Now, uh, if you read through Matthew's gospel, uh, what you'll find is that people who call Jesus teacher, they're only ever interested in academic questions. Uh, it's usually the Pharisees who call Jesus teacher. And so here we have this man. We'll learn that he's a moral man, um, quite influential. Other gospels call him a ruler. Uh, and by calling Jesus teacher, seems like what he wants is a, a profound an insightful teaching on his theological question. Uh, he wants to go beyond the basics. He wants a weighty pronouncement from the teacher, Jesus. Uh, what Jesus does, he just sends him back to the Bible and lays before him obedience. Have a look. Verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Uh, but now, this man, he starts to wriggle a bit. He's squirming. He wants to keep it academic. And so he responds, verse 18, which ones? Which commands? Uh, Jesus comes right back to him uh, and Jesus says, uh, why don't you just start with the second half of the five, uh, second five of the ten commandments. Um, start with those. Plus, love your neighbor. That's from Leviticus 19. Now, interesting. why does Jesus pick those five of the ten? Why not the first five? We'll come back to that later. I think there's something there. But just notice, Jesus refuses to give him an academic answer. He just lays before him obedience. Uh, that's when this man really kind of lays his cards on the table. Verse 20, all these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Uh, clearly, this man is very moral. Just notice, Jesus more or less takes him at his word. Um, you know, we might hear this man and we'll say, ah, there is no one righteous, not one, which is true. Uh, but just notice, Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus does something more clever. Uh, and so uh, notice this man, he says, what do I still lack? At one level, I reckon he's actually put his finger on something. There is more to eternal life than simply keeping rules. But there is also a deeper issue with what he says. Notice he effectively says, I know the commands, I've kept them, but those commands, they're not enough. There's something lacking. I want to go beyond. Can you give me something more, Jesus? That's when Jesus gets personal. Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Have a look at what Bonhoeffer says about this. 
He had hoped Jesus would offer him a solution of his moral difficulties. But instead, he finds Jesus attacking not his question, but himself. The only answer to his difficulties is the very commandment of God, which challenges him to have done with academic discussion and to get on with the task of obedience. Jesus is not interested in the young man's problems. He's interested in the young man himself. Uh, See, this young man, he came out hoping to meet the teacher. What he got instead was the real Jesus. And the real Jesus always gets personal. See, when anyone ever starts to kind of explore Jesus, the things of faith, they usually come to him with academic questions, looking for a profound answer. Uh, Things like, why would a good God send people to hell? Um, How can Jesus be so exclusive? Um, Or you might even ask, how can I believe when the miracles are so unbelievable? And there is a place for answering these academic questions. But more often than not, those are rarely the real issue that we have with Jesus. And when you meet the real Jesus, he always puts his finger on the real issue. Uh, And that's what he does for this man when he raises the issue of money. Uh, And just notice this man leaves grieving. Because when you meet the real Jesus, there's only one of two responses, obedience or rejection. The one thing we can't do is be indifferent um, if we've met the real Jesus. Jesus refuses to just send us away with profound answers, um, which is what this rich young man wanted. Jesus always gets personal. Uh, If Christianity's never become personal for you, is it possible you've never really met the real Jesus? It's the first mistake this young man makes. He treats Jesus simply as a teacher. What he got was the real Jesus. Uh, Second mistake is that he treats Jesus as simply something to add, something to add into his life. Um, See, notice what kind of mindset he comes with. He comes with a mindset of, I've come this far, but I need Jesus to help me get the rest of the way. And so he asks, what do I still lack? There's something missing. Uh, It's like he's figured out most of the puzzle But he needs Jesus to just put the last few pieces into place. He needs Jesus to fill in the blanks. I reckon there's two key ways this man felt lacking. Uh, First, I think he found something lacking in the world. Uh, Remember, he comes asking about eternal life. How do I get that? Um, Despite all his wealth, there was still something missing. Um, He hadn't yet found the kind of life that is lasting, satisfying. And so he says, how do I find life? But he didn't just find something lacking in life. I think he also found something lacking in himself. Notice, uh, he's kept all the commands. But he knew there was still something he'd missed. Um, And so he asks, what good thing do I need to do? Uh, There is still some good thing that hadn't yet been done. Uh, And so he finds something lacking in himself. But just notice his mindset. His mindset is, I've come this far, and now I need the last good thing. Uh, The last piece, uh, Jesus is seen as just completing, finishing, filling out his already well-rounded life. Jesus is just something to add. But Jesus will have none of it. Uh, He shuts the door on that kind of thinking. Uh, I think you see a hint, verse 18. Uh, Jesus says, there is only one who is good, and it ain't you, buddy. Um, This man doesn't just need the final piece. He's on entirely the wrong road. 
Uh, But then Jesus really lands the punch by giving him the one command that he knows this man could never keep. Um, He says, sell everything. Give it to the poor, come follow me. Um, I have been puzzled by why Jesus asks him to do this. Um, I think there's more to it than this, but I think at one level, Jesus gives this command simply just to show this man that there is a limit to his obedience. There is one good thing he can't do. And when he can't do that, the whole house of cards falls over. Um, Jesus pulls the rug out from under this man. He sends him packing. Uh, If you come to Jesus looking for something to add into your life, you'll go away grieving. Uh, Because Jesus isn't just something to add. He's not just the last good thing. Uh, He's more like an explosion that clears the way for something entirely new. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that's the second mistake that this man makes. He treats Jesus as something to add. Uh, But third, the ultimate mistake is that he treats Jesus as unworthy. So when Jesus tells this man to sell everything, he's putting before this man a very clear, very unambiguous choice. Jesus or wealth. And in this moment, this man finds Jesus unworthy. He counts up the cost and he says, Jesus, you are not worth it. Um, This is how Bonhoeffer puts it. He stands face to face with Jesus, the Son of God. It is the ultimate encounter. It is now only a question of yes or no, of obedience or disobedience. The answer is no. He went away sorrowful, disappointed, and deceived of his hopes, unable to wrench himself from his past. He had great possessions. I'll say it again. I wonder if this moment haunted this man for the rest of his life, wondering what would have happened if he'd found Jesus worthy. Uh, I think this is where we, um, I think we see a tangible outworking of something Jesus said earlier in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Um, Bonhoeffer again, uh, he says this. Our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion. We can only cleave to one Lord. Every competitor to that devotion must be hated. As Jesus says, there is no alternative. Either we love God or we hate him. We are confronted with an either-or. Either we love God or we love earthly goods. Maybe you hear that. And you might be wondering, why does it have to be so exclusive? Why does it have to be a love-hate thing? Um, What if we change the metaphor from having a master to that of marriage, which is another metaphor the Bible uses. In a marriage, you can only love one person. If you introduce a second love for a second person into that marriage, it actually destroys the love. It's the same with faith. It is always relational. There's only enough room in a human heart for one Lord. Uh, And so the question is, is he worthy? Is Jesus worthy? And this man, he heard that question very clearly, and his answer was, no, he is unworthy. Uh, That was this man's third mistake. He found Jesus unworthy, and he left grieving. Uh, Just before we move on, let me ask, are you in danger? of falling into one of these mistakes. Have you met the real Jesus yet? 
Has it become personal or is it still just academic as if Jesus were simply a teacher? Uh, is Jesus just something to add into your life, either just to give you a sense of spirituality or meaning or just to take you one step further on your journey? Um, have you had to count the cost of following Jesus? Have you had to ask the question, is he worthy? And do you know what you'd say? Don't make the same mistakes as this young man. Uh, but now I want to turn, I want to think about the three marks of a true disciple. Uh, I think here's where we're going to start to land some things, especially when it comes to money. Uh, the first mark of a true disciple is that the true disciple leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. And this is where we kind of see the flip side to having Jesus as just an addition. Jesus is not just an addition. True disciple leaves everything behind. Uh, so I want to come back to the question, why did Jesus ask this man to sell everything? Um, if you're wondering, did he have to sell everything? Uh, Mark and Luke, in their Gospels, they clarify, yes, he did ask him to sell everything. Uh, so why would Jesus ask this? especially when Jesus doesn't ask it of so many other people. Um, Bonhoeffer, uh, very insightful, he explains that without the command to sell everything, this man wouldn't have known what it means to follow Jesus. Um, the command to sell everything actually explains what it means to him to follow Jesus. Um, have you noticed how we often get hung up on the command to sell everything, not the command to follow Jesus? We're like, okay, yeah, following Jesus, that makes sense. I'm okay with that. Um, could it be that the command to sell everything actually shows us how radical it is to follow Jesus? Uh, and so Bonhoeffer explains it like this. Long quote, very helpful. Even this command to follow Jesus might be misunderstood and therefore it has to be explained. For the young man might still fall back into his original mistake and take the commandment as an opportunity for moral adventure, a thrilling way of life, but one which might easily be abandoned for another if occasion arose. It would be just as wrong if the young man were to regard discipleship as the logical conclusion of his search for truth in which he had hitherto been engaged, as an addition, a clarification, or a completion of his old life. And so to avoid all misunderstandings, Jesus has to create a situation in which there can be no retreat, an irrevocable, uh, irrevocable situation. Uh, at the same time, it must be made clear to him that this is in no sense a fulfillment of his past life. It is an addition which requires the abandonment of every previous attachment. I think that last line is the most helpful because here is what it actually means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means leaving everything behind, abandoning every previous attachment. I think that's what's going on with this image of a camel going through the eye of a needle. Uh, see, think this young man, he came thinking he lacked something. There was something missing. But the imagery of a camel, which is something huge, going through something impossibly small, that says the key dynamic of Christianity is not gaining something lacked, not getting bigger, but losing something, which was held. Uh, the problem is not lacking something, it's having too much, like a big camel. 
and it needs to be lost. Not just a little bit, skinny camels, they still can't get through. Um, Everything needs to be left behind. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, And I think we see this in the example of the disciples. So notice verse 27, Peter on behalf of the disciples. uh, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Uh, And if you're wondering if that only applies to the 12 official apostles of Jesus, have a look at what Jesus says, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Who are those who will inherit eternal life? It's those who leave everything for the sake of Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. Now, Jesus gave a specific application to this man because without it, he wouldn't have understood what it means to follow Jesus. But the general principle is the same for all of us. Following Jesus means leaving everything behind. Now, What that actually means, we'll talk about in a sec. But that's the first mark of a true disciple. Uh, The second is that a true disciple uses what they have for the kingdom. Um, Just notice, Jesus doesn't tell this man to burn all his possessions or just to go and throw them off the edge of a cliff. He doesn't just want this man to be poor. He actually wants him to use his wealth for the sake of the kingdom. Remember the second commandment, so go and sell everything and give it to the poor. Um, I wonder if that's because this young man, he was very willing to fulfill almost every area of law keeping, except that he didn't have a generous heart. I wonder if that's why Jesus highlighted the second half of the Ten Commandments. Those are the ones that are focused on loving others. First five are focused on loving God. As if Jesus knew that this man's weak point was that he did not love others with his wealth. And so Jesus told him to use his wealth, all of it, to love others. And he said, no. Can you see what Jesus wants is not an empty bank account but a total reorientation of the heart. And he doesn't just want us to be willing to give up everything. That's too passive. He actually wants us to use everything for the kingdom of God. And can you see how this goes hand in hand with giving up everything to follow Jesus? Because we first renounce everything, we leave it all behind, and then we use it for the sake of his kingdom. Can you see what this means? It means that the disciple does not own anything, at least in the traditional sense of the word. Rather, the disciple stewards what they have from God. It's a mindset shift that goes from saying, what I have is my own, to saying, what I have is not my own, but has been given by God, entrusted to me, to use for the sake of his kingdom. Grace City, if your trust is in Jesus, you are not a rich person who owns things. Regardless of how much money you make, you are a disciple of Jesus that has been entrusted with gifts to be used for his kingdom. It's not about being a little bit more generous. It's a total, a complete submission of everything we have to the command, to the bidding of Jesus. And Jesus told this man exactly what to do with all his wealth. 
But like everyone else, we get to figure that out for ourselves using his word. That's called wisdom. That's why this passage is so radical, so challenging, because Jesus is telling us over every single dollar to your name, write God's. And so when we spend money, we don't spend what's ours because we've already abandoned it, submitted it to the Lordship of Jesus. And so every dollar we spend is the wealth of Christ. I can imagine a whole bunch of us are starting to ask questions, though, like, can I enjoy nice things? Can I go on a holiday? Can I own a house? Can I go out, enjoy a nice meal? I want to answer some of those questions with a little illustration. Imagine I give you $100. I have $100 here. Uh, (laughs) It's Monopoly money. I thought it would be a bit much to bring a $100 bill, and who even uses cash anymore? Um, So imagine I give you $100 on three conditions. First, you have to use it all tomorrow. Second, you can't use any of your own money tomorrow for your own expenses, for your daily expenses. So none of your own money tomorrow, only this $100. I'm giving it to you. But three... You have to have the biggest kingdom impact possible with this money. How would you spend it? Would you spend any on food for yourself tomorrow? You probably need to eat. What kind of food would you buy? Would you buy yourself a coffee? Mm, ouch. <laughs> that's, that's me. <laughs> um, how, much, how much of it would you give away? What to? Would you invest any of it? What in? How would you spend that $100 to have the biggest kingdom impact possible? I think according to this passage, that is the mindset we ought to have with all of our money. It's illustration. It's not perfect. doesn't answer every question. But I think it can help us start imagining what it might look like to use our wealth for the kingdom. I think one of these things that uh, this points out is that we actually have freedom to use our wealth creatively. Like there's no one size fits all. You have to use this percentage on that, that, on that. There's actually freedom to use our wealth in creative ways to have the biggest kingdom impact possible. But there is one big objection to all of this kind of thinking. The objection is this. I earned this. This is mine. I worked hard for it. Which is exactly how this rich young man thought. He was happy to engage in academic discussion, but when Jesus made a claim over his wealth and all of it, he said, no, you can't have that. That's mine. I think, if we're honest, that's actually a pretty natural way to think, to say, yeah, I earned it, and so it's mine. That's how our world thinks. I think there is actually a part of all of us that thinks like that. That's why Jesus says it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. His claims are so radical that it actually results in a kind of death for the one who follows him. It's giving up everything we are, everything we have, everything we hold dear, submitting it to the Lordship of Jesus. It's like a kind of death. That's why Jesus says it's impossible. Nobody wants to lose everything. And so why would anyone ever do this? First thing to notice is that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Have a look, verse 26. With man, this is impossible. 
but with God all things are possible. Now, just notice the miracle isn't bringing fat camels through eyes of needles. That's not the miracle. The, mi- the miracle's not bringing wealthy people into the kingdom. It's enabling people to lose everything for Jesus. That's the miracle. So how does God make that possible? For someone to lose everything for Jesus. He makes it possible, makes the impossible possible by giving us a new treasure. So you'll only give up everything for Jesus if you already know that you've already been made rich in him. Uh, The true disciple has new treasure. That's the third mark of a true disciple. New treasure. Jesus actually unpacks this dynamic earlier in Matthew's gospel. Back in chapter 13, Jesus tells a very short little story. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Notice what the man does in that story. Sells all that he has, which is what the man in our story couldn't do. Why? Because the man in our story couldn't see the treasure. Um, Jesus, he doesn't just call us to a life of emptiness and poverty. He knows that there is something in us that longs for treasure And so what he does is give us the true treasure that our hearts truly long for. Um, Bonhoeffer says this, last quote from him. It is to be observed that Jesus does not deprive the human heart of its instinctive needs, treasure, glory, and praise, but he gives it higher objects, the glory of God, the glorying in the cross and the treasure in heaven. So as I finish... uh, Let me show you the three treasures of true disciples. Uh, First is treasure in heaven. Remember what was sandwiched in the middle of that command to this young man? It's easy to miss. Verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go. Sell all your possessions. Give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Um, I'm not a great economist. um, But treasure in heaven sounds pretty good. Jesus says a similar thing in verse 29. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. For the one who gives up earthly treasures, there will be a hundredfold in the new creation when God renews all things. That's the first treasure. The second treasure is actually Jesus himself. Look at that same verse again. Everyone who has left all of these things for my sake, for the sake of Jesus, it's all done for Jesus because he is ultimately the treasure of greatest price. John Piper says this, the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ. Revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. The saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. Treasure in heaven, treasure in Jesus. The last treasure is actually being treasured by Jesus. Uh, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 8. We'll look at this in a few weeks. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. Grace City, Jesus gave up all his riches so that by his blood he might purchase you. That's how he makes the impossible possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the treasure of greatest price, for his death on our behalf. We pray that we here at Grace City would be a people who count everything as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Thank you for every blessing you have given us. And we pray, give us a hunger, creativity, and the wisdom to use every blessing for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray, God, build your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name.